0: Hello, hello, Brattleboro. This is WVEWLP Brattleboro 107.7 FM, and you are now listening to the Montpelier Happy Hour, where we discuss how things in Montpelier shake out for Wyndham County. I'm your host, Olga Peters, and I want to introduce to the studio today, in the studio, very excited. We have, of course, regular contributor, representative Emily Kornheiser.
1: Hey, Emily. Hi, Olga. Great to be here on this sunny, cool fall day. I
0: know, and it's it's even gallery walk tonight, mm-hmm. isn't it? Mm-hmm. And then we have a guest in the studio. We're so excited because we've been having people via telephone. And now Meg Mott is here with us in the studio today. Hi, Meg.
2: Hi, Olga. Thank you for having me here. Thanks, Emily, for inviting me.
0: Absolutely. For folks who may not be familiar with you, Meg, or, or your work uh, at Marlborough College, uh, just tell us a little, little bit about yourself.
2: Uh, well, I started in this town. Is, can, are you able to pick up my mic? I think... <laughs> try again. Okay. Um, I start, nope, nope. Uh, Emily, why
0: don't you tell us why we're having this conversation today and I'm going to change Meg's mic over.
1: Great. That sounds good. Um, so we are on week and today I'm so excited to be talking about speech, free speech and hate speech, which is a topic, um, that shapes everything and I think is a particularly, Of interest to Vermonters, given the aftermath of um, the Trump election, the rise of um, white supremacist rhetoric, and the rise in hate crimes in our state. And Mm -hmm. so I think a lot more people are talking about this than have in past decades. So I'm excited to have Meg here to talk about it. Meg, is your mic working? Let's see. does Does this pick up? Try again. Can you
2: hear me? Oh yes. Oh now good. We can, okay. Loud and clear. That's excellent. So yes, thank
0: you. If you tell us just quickly a little bit about yourself and then and then yeah, I would love some history about mm. the concept of quote unquote free speech in mm. this country.
2: Great. Um, so, as if you didn't hear before, my name is Meg Mott. I've been teaching politics at Marlborough College and constitutional law for the last 20 years, but I just retired, and that's so I can spend more time talking about the Constitution and the amendments, particularly the Bill of Rights, um, to the general public because I'm noticing that there are um, a lot of reasons why maybe because of the most recent election, but oftentimes when the country's in crisis, people want to understand what can we do, and um, I think the Constitution gives us a sense of some of the things we can do, and what we may need to make creative arguments in order to get done, and so part of my effort post Marlboro is to bring the Constitution to the streets and see how people dance with it, because I... Personally, I think it's pretty fabulous, and I also think it can't solve all our problems. So um, I, I'm trying to take a realistic perspective here when I talk about such such a thing as free speech. What exactly does that mean in the United States? What has it meant in Vermont? And what does the Supreme Court think about free speech, our
1: current Supreme
2: Court? So that's what I hope to talk about.
1: I really appreciate the idea of bringing the Constitution into the streets and dancing with it Um, and that's really a lot of what we've been trying to do here is figure out ways that more people in our communities, in our neighborhoods can understand how to be part of the political conversation, can understand some of the language of the political conversation, and can feel a sense of ownership over it because that's the point of democracy. That's the only way democracy works is if we're all able to have these conversations together. Right,
2: that's been the inspiration behind a series that I've been doing at local libraries called Debating Our Rights. Uh, which we look at each one of these rights one at a time, and we go back to what is the actual text, how are there different ways to interpret the text, what did it mean at the founding? There was always a controversy about every single word. The idea that there's one interpretation of these words is wrong. Uh, We are a deliberative, debating, um, differing population in the United States, so um, it's just been good for people to be able to have a sense of what some of these debates are, because my guess is What we talk about today are debates that we've had in this country for a long time, particularly around uh, what is permissible speech and what is speech that may be very offensive that's protected by
1: the First Amendment. Mm -hmm. Thank you. I find um, that incredibly soothing as an idea, that these are things we've been arguing about for a long time and to remember sort of the slow arc of history, Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. ideas are complex, that there's no easy solution. And that we are supposed to be in disagreement and deliberation over these things Mm -hmm. because it makes... It makes, my life, it makes life seem possible in some ways. And so thank you for that. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, and I think we, we often forget that we, we look at this, this constitution as an example and it's words on a page, mm-hmm. which is a very concrete, tactile thing. But human society, it, as I've said before, if we're doing it right, mm-hmm. is constantly evolving. And so what we need from the constitution, I think is often changing as well and what we need from each other. Mm-hmm. Um, which, of course, will keep these debates going. <laughs> mm-hmm. right. right. So tell us a little bit about, uh, just give us context mm-hmm. about free speech in this country. Mm-hmm. And anything that pertains to Vermont would be really wonderful, mm-hmm. too. Thanks.
2: Uh, so if we look at the First Amendment, the first few lines say, Congress shall make no law. And then there's all these different liberties in the very First Amendment that are protected. And one of them is freedom of speech. Uh, and when that was um, amen- when that was added on to the Constitution, and James Madison was the guy who came up with, he came up with actually 12 amendments, but only 10 of them passed muster. A- at the time, there was this idea, we don't need a Bill of Rights. The Federalists said, um, this doesn't make sense, we've got some protections, and if you look at Article 1, Congress is actually uh, Article 1 in the Constitution There are restrictions on what Congress Cannot do, so why should there be A Bill of Rights that begins Congress shall make no law, when there's already uh, Those uh, restrictions there Um, But a lot of people felt like Wait a minute, you want this Constitution Ratified, and if If you look at how in order to pass an amendment, it's not just Congress. It's also it has to be ratified by the states. And a lot of the states are saying, we're not going to ratify the Constitution unless you give us this Bill of Rights. And the idea was that the Bill of Rights was going to just restrict the federal government. It was never intended to restrict the states.
1: Wow. Mm I had no idea. Mm -hmm.
2: So Congress shall pass no law means free speech is something... That the Congress And the federal government need to respect In the state of Vermont uh, And we got our constitution I think it's 1786 uh, Not all states Did this but Vermont said When the people are doing their business Freedom of the Freedom of speech and freedom of The press must be respected So then you think oh wow That's very progressive but what does it mean When the people are deliberating It means that If you are somebody like Emily, if you are doing the people's business, meaning that you're an elected official in the state legislature, then you are able to say whatever you want to say. And actually, you can even criticize the government and you will not get hold off to the pokey.
1: Oh, (laughs) And I would like to add, because I can't help myself, that when I assume that when this was drafted and ratified, people holding elected office were not necessarily people like Emily. That's true. In fact,
2: in Vermont, you had to sign an oath saying that you owned and professed the Protestant faith. Hmm. So only Protestants were allowed to serve and do the people's business. White male Protestants? Uh, It wasn't necessarily white. Um, Some state constitutions, such as South Carolina, it says free white males. In Vermont, um, there's nothing about race. But you had to be a Protestant, Mm. free black man. You certainly couldn't be a woman. Uh, But there was not going to be... No Jews. No No Catholics, right? And and Quakers are, at that point, somewhat suspect. Mm. And what happened is the different colonies attracted different Mm -hmm. religious groups. I don't think there was a Jewish state, interestingly enough. Mm. There was a Catholic state, Maryland, Mm -hmm. uh, and there were places where the Quakers went, Pennsylvania. But Protestants, and then there's even distinctions between where did the Calvinists go, where did the Presbyterians go. So free speech in Vermont was recognized as long as you understood it was just engaged in legislative activity uh, and that you could use your speech to dissent against the government you just couldn't say anything about transubstantiation or the
1: Torah. <laughs> that was off limits. It, in some ways it still is. Yeah. yeah.
2: And then Jefferson, who's a big um, proponent of free speech, mm-hmm. he uh, writes to Abigail Adams at one point during this whole building up of the which amendments are going to get passed. And he says, we always understood that the states could decide for themselves how much free speech there is and how much freedom of press. So Congress is constrained and the states can do whatever they like Mm -hmm. and they can, because the states are understood as the moral leaders.
0: Oh, legislating morality. Here it comes. Exactly. So, and we
1: trust the states to be moral leaders because they in some ways have a much more consistent population within their bounds.
2: That was the understanding. Agreement
1: would be much easier in a state, especially if people are dividing by ethnic and religious group. Yeah. When they settle.
2: Right, so locality becomes very important That you can create morality within your locality
0: Mm -hmm.
2: And Jefferson was totally behind that James Madison says this is a terrible idea The states will do whatever they want Rights are just parchment barriers And Madison is one of the few people who understood at that time That it's not just what the government does It's what the majority does to the minority That people really have to be worried about and that's not at all a concern of until we get the 14th Amendment. Mm-hmm. So we may have this First Amendment. It just constrains Congress. Mm-hmm. It's understood as a very limited right within the states because the states can make all sorts of moral decisions mm-hmm. for their population. And then uh, it, it all changes once we have the 14th Amendment because then it becomes understood as personal rights, sometimes against... Um, prejudicial majorities
0: Mm -hmm. and just uh remind us when the 14th amendment was i think
2: it's about i don't know if it's 1867 or 1868 i you know i don't have my constitution right in front of me that's so unusual Mm -hmm. but yeah it was um (laughs) it's part of the reconstruction amendments um
0: but there's that's a gap of time between when everything first kicked off and Mm -hmm. that 14th amendment
1: right About 100 years.
0: Mm -hmm. Thank you for doing that math.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I took notes. Mm. So, I mean, the reason I I always think it's useful to talk about free speech with this kind of background Mm -hmm. because... People imagine themselves to have rights that may not actually exist in history. And then we get this really interesting phenomenon of grabbing the text and saying, well, it says freedom of speech, therefore I must be able to say whatever I want. Um, Now, in fact, the the U.S. Supreme Court cultivates that belief because Mm -hmm. they have been very, very sympathetic to uh, offensive speech being protected. And I think that's where most states, if they try and legislate this, they're going to run into trouble with the Supreme Court.
1: And Mm -hmm. the Supreme Court, what is your perspective on the Supreme Court's um, decisions on that and whether or not they really line up with the Constitution?
2: Um, Oh, I think they do line up. I mean, that's the nice thing about being on the Supreme Court. They pretty much (laughs) are the, the, you know, it's the priestly class of Mm -hmm. this scriptural text. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I can use a religious analogy. So what, whatever they say, it means that they, it lines up. Mm-hmm. Um, however, some of their um, decisions have been, for the most part, unanimous around free speech. So when um, the city of St. Paul in Minnesota, they passed an ordinance making it a misdemeanor, but a crime to place a burning cross or a swastika um, and if it was if it was targeted at um, a group of people based on race, gender, or religion, then those people would be charged. And the Supreme Court threw it out as unconstitutional because of how it was focused on certain groups. So if you offended African Americans, people of color, religious minorities or women, then it was a crime. But if you offended, white Baptists, it was not a crime. So the phrasing of the ordinance, because they
1: were trying to protect Mm -hmm. targeted groups, uh, the Supreme Court threw it out. But if it had been a more universal protection, they would not have? Well, because then a couple years later, Virginia had a statute
2: that um, criminalized burning crosses. If -hmm. it was on public land, near highways, or 250 feet from a high, uh, highway or something of that sort. So you could not burn a cross in the state of Virginia in any place where the public could see it. Mm-hmm. Mm. And the Supreme Court said, yes, you can do that because because you're not saying because it will then impact a certain population differently. You just make that,
1: um, that against action the law. Illegal. It's universally yeah. applied. Mm-hmm. Huh? It's funny because... I think, um, at least in the circles I travel in, it is very popular now to talk about intention versus impact Mm -hmm. versus action Mm -hmm. and that the impact is actually what matters. But what I hear you saying is that legally we are not allowed to talk about how the impact matters in this case. Right, right. Impact, the Supreme Court would throw it out. Now, personally, that makes
2: me very happy Hmm. because you can't control impact. Mm -hmm. And... Mm -hmm. um, I mean, what I, I studied the Inquisition for my dissertation, and the Inquisition was very interested in impact. They were looking for evidence of people feeling afraid because somebody was engaged in either demonic activity or crypto-Judaic activity. Mm-hmm. Hidden Jews were among us. And if people started to be afraid because they thought so-and-so was actually Jewish and not Catholic, that was enough evidence. So whenever I see laws that are looking more about impact... And that that's enough evidence I get pretty nervous mm-hmm. You can't control impact And it's really easy to um, If you don't like somebody To say you're threatening me I feel threatened for this reason Therefore we need to bring a case Against you And my evidence of feeling afraid um, d- um, Discriminated against Or whatever will be enough To charge you mm-hmm. You don't have to prove guilty mind Right That's really big
1: Mm-hmm
0: that is big. And well, that that's also the other part of what Emily was just saying, uh, the intent versus impact versus action. Um, what about legislating intent? I mean, it does that get into the the realm of uh, mind policing or is that a realm that you can control legally?
2: I, th- I think, and this is, again, some Supreme Court decisions. There was a decision back in the 1940s which came up with the term fighting words. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you intended to say something that then provoked an action of violence in somebody, that kind of speech is not protected. Because the idea is, it's when do you move from speech into action? Mm-hmm. And certain kinds of insults you could just count on there being a violent response. So that kind of fighting words, although it's it, you know it's kind of difficult to legislate. It's why I yes. think we usually find it on a case by case basis. Mm-hmm. Somebody gets usually sued for um, slander or libel or something, and then it goes to the courts and you determine it.
0: Well, that's really fascinating too, because one of as, as a journalist when I'm I'm thinking about these issues around free speech and censorship and freedom of the press. Um, You know, one of the things I keep coming back to is the slippery slope is who's deciding what's offensive Mm -hmm. towards towards what group and um, can that, oh, we're just protecting someone, quote unquote, actually be a form of censorship if we're not careful. You know, that's Mm -hmm. kind of the slippery slope we can get into. And when the fighting words in a way is kind of a good example, because I would argue that President Trump at a lot of his rallies is whipping people into a fervor and is on that line of fighting words. And so how come, but he's not getting called on the carpet.
1: Well, and I think it's, I would add to that by saying populations that have been oppressed or marginalized for generations or even individuals become society expects them to be, become attenuated to certain language. Hmm. And Mm -hmm. so what would be considered fighting words pointed at one population Mm -hmm. would not be considered fighting words, I think, by sort of... Mm -hmm. I don't really want to use the word hegemony on public radio, but I think that's what I'm about to do. Um, Go for it. (laughs) Sort of when we think about um, what becomes cultural norms, that's often decided by a culture that is, you know, white, Christian, and male... What would be considered a fighting word as experienced again, t- you know, mm. by a person of color who we expect to become attenuated to certain negative treatment, I think is very different. So I don't even understand how we define fighting words. Because what would cause someone to fight or experience, you know? Um, so it would be a defense if. Um, so if
2: we had. Uh, sometimes it's because this is case law, we come up with some sort yeah. of scenario. Um, imagine there's two people in a, um, bar and, um, one person is white and the other person is black. So to sort of play off what you're saying, Mm -hmm. Emily, and, um, the white, and they're both slightly intoxicated and the white person makes a racial slur Mm -hmm. and then the black person slugs them. Mm -hmm. The white person would say, I didn't provoke you. That was free speech. Mm -hmm. But that kind of a scenario, exactly where you see fighting words. Okay. Mm -hmm. And so really what you're, you're not doing a larger, and you know, uh, uh, this is where the law looks at the specifics of the case and, and is fairly resistant to looking at it from a sociological perspective, um, because then that turns into all other sort of things. Are we going to create different laws for different populations? Mm -hmm. Are we going to anticipate that somebody just based on their skin color is always going to have the same kind of experience? Mm -hmm. Um, and, um, yeah, so when we're thinking about it just in terms of the law, these are more like, these are used as defenses in certain specific incidents. Mm-hmm. Yeah. mm mm-hmm. And an example of the uh, offensive speech, and this is another Supreme Court case that happened in 2011. Um, You may have heard of Pastor Fred Phelps. He became Mm -hmm. famous for going to military funerals and Mm -hmm. carrying posters that said God is a... a, um, What? God hates fags, I think, was one of them, And there was others to that effect, and that we deserve 9-11, and that's why we have 9-11, because we let gays into the military. And that case, um, he was sued by a father of a fallen soldier and um the father received all sorts of monetary damages damages for having this guy protest at his son's funeral and um they went to the Supreme Court and Phelps was able to throw out that civil suit because the Supreme Court said, this is Justice Roberts, um, we need to, uh, or the First
1: Amendment protects objectionable speech. So that was not fighting words. But if that father had beaten, that, beaten him to a bloody pulp, he would have gotten off? Um, not necessarily because those weren't fighting words. Okay, they weren't directed
2: specifically to the father. Oh, it has to be personal. Okay. It has to really be a situation in which somebody says something that provokes an at a response that any reasonable person standard would feel that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: So what happens if someone's standing up in the in the town square saying, uh, "We have to go." okay climate change we have to save the planet so let's go break everyone's cars on main street so that they can't drive them
2: that's pretty specific i would say that's um actionable in the sense of it's inciting people to violence okay it's very specific violence okay and the more specific your violence is the less you're able to make a free speech (laughs) defense
0: okay so i'm curious how uh in just the the five minutes before we go to break um I've I've always been very curious about how some of these concepts of free speech made it into the world of the creative world, mm. uh, because as as some people may know, early on in the film industry, a lot of things were not protected by the First Amendment because the film industry was considered a business mm. and therefore not an art form mm. and therefore not protected. So I'm I'm curious how did the free speech make it to the press? How did it make it to Facebook? How did it make it to the film industry?
2: Right. So um, remember, the First Amendment is just Congress shall make no law. That doesn't mean anybody else. I mean, the minute you're into the private sphere, there are no no restrictions Mm -hmm. around this. So um, uh, certainly there were some obscenity cases that may have gone through the films in which people tried to make a case. Um, This is not obscenity. You should let us uh, Published this film And then they had community standards Potter Stewart was famous for saying I, I don't know what pornography is But I know it when I see it Right. Um, so there were efforts to try and, and get more Racy content To the public It's kind of interesting But that was never something uh, That um, If you say that Congress can make no law That's not necessarily saying That um, Other Entities can't restrict. Mm-hmm. So corporations might make all sorts of decisions about what they want to present or not present. I know I may have scaled back a little bit differently by, by going into corporations, but um, the it's kind of interesting to think also about how things that may have been obscene and not been able to be published in the past, now the biggest market is pornography. Mm. And I- so you could say, wow first amendment is really really strong in this country i would say it's that the market is much stronger than the constitution ah. in terms of how things get done mm-hmm. okay
1: and so given that um so much now of what we consider the public square or the place where the debates that once happened in the public square happen we often talk about people using their twitter handles as a soapbox mm-hmm. even though the sort of metaphor is based in something that actually existed physically in a physical public space. What does it mean that those protections which existed for the public space are not available in private space? That our corporations that own what is now the public square are able to decide what is accessible, acceptable and unacceptable speech?
2: Right. I mean, that's <laughs> true. What yeah. does it mean? I, we have technology going beyond our laws. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's pretty clear. I think Facebook uh, and most transnational corporations, um, they're going to have to be making these rules up. And the European Union may have one set of rules, and mm-hmm. especially when it comes to hate speech, they're going to be far more policing than the United States. I would imagine Canada is mm-hmm. going to ask for more policing than the United States.
1: Um, yeah. Why do you think these countries ask for more policing than we do on these issues?
2: Um, Well, they are a, a, a I don't know, what do I wanna say about that one? Because um, the fact that the United States had a revolution Mm -hmm. (laughs) against a monarch, and at the time, the monarch engaged in some pretty nefarious activities, whether they were Catholic or Protestant monarchs, and Torturing people and forcing confessions and burning people at the stake. Um, And um, if you said something against the monarch, I don't think I should say that on the air. Exactly what they did to your body parts, but it was fairly. Well, more than that. I mean, it's really, really grisly and you're alive for nine tenths of this um, operation that mm-hmm. goes to your body, um, there was, uh, uh, when they did the revolution, they were very clearly, we're not going to do these things. Mm-hmm. And since there was all this attack on speech by the King George and earlier monarchs, we carved out something that other countries haven't. Thank mm-hmm. you.
0: Yeah. Uh, we have to go to break, uh, but I, I want us to kind of hold that thought about carving out that space um, because Emily and I were at a meeting yesterday that I think might have a really good example of that, Mm -hmm. of something from Europe kind of trying to make its way as far as speech is concerned into the US. Um, Here we are, we are going to